This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Heritage New Zealand. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Gregor Campbell reports on a visit by author Anthony Trollope. Sarah Gallagher and Judy Southworth explain the history of Dr. Stewart's statue in Queen's Gardens. And Bill Southworth links former Pacific Prime Ministers to the Otago Medical School. Famous author Anthony Trollope visited Dunedin and Otago at the height of the gold rush. Gregor Campbell reports. Sometimes the eye of the historian is guided by that of the novelist, who is not only descriptive in what they see, but also in how they feel. Otago was fortunate in 1872 to be graced by the presence of novelist Anthony Trollope, who recorded his impressions of travelling from the Bluff to Dunedin by way of Queenstown. The following are a few excerpts from his account, beginning at an inn, halfway between Winton and Kingston. A better boiled turkey and plum pudding were never put upon a table. I did not like the Swede himself so well as I entertained a suspicion that he made us pay double fare as strangers to the country. I fancy that this practice is prevalent in Otago generally, which is a canny province, colonised by the Scotch, given to thrift, and prosperous accordingly. Indeed, it was impossible not to remember the story of George III, who, when charged a guinea by some innkeeper for a boiled egg, suggested with gentle sarcasm that eggs were probably scarce in that part of the country. No, Your Majesty, but kings are. Travelling strangers are scarce in Otago, especially in winter, and therefore it answers better to make something of the bird in the hand than to allure birds out of the bush by reasonable charges. I do not think that lake scenery can be finer than that of the upper ten miles of Wakatip, although doubtless it can be much prettier. The mountains for the most part are bare and steep. Here and there only are they wooded down to the water's edge, and so much is the timber in request for fuel and building that what there is of it close to the water will quickly disappear. As the steamer gradually winds round into the upper reach, which runs almost directly north and south, one set of peaks after another comes into view. They are sharp and broken, making the hilltops look like a vast saw with irregular gaps in it. Perhaps no shape of a mountaintop is more picturesque than this. The summits are nearly as high as those of Switzerland, that of Mount Ernslaw at the head of the lake being 9,165 feet above sea level. The mountains themselves, however, do not look to be so big as the Alps. There is no one peak that strikes one as does the Matterhorn, no one head like the head of Mont Blanc, no one mountain which seems to be quite so much of a mountain as the Jungfrau, but the effect of the sun shining on the line of peaks was equal to anything I had seen elsewhere. There have been three successive styles of architecture in these towns indicating different periods. The first is the canvas style, in which men live in tents. 
that had passed away from the Otago goldfields before our arrival. The second is the corrugated iron period, and that style was flourishing at the time of our visit. The third is the wooden period, beyond which no advance has yet been here made in many of the New Zealand towns. Corrugated iron does not make picturesque houses. Probably my readers all know the thin fluted material of which I speak, drawn out so fine it can be cut like cloth for the pair of shears. It is very portable, very easily shaped, capable of quick construction, and it keeps out the rain. It is, however, subject to drawbacks. The rooms formed of it, of course, are small, and every word uttered in the house can be heard throughout it, as through a shed put up without divisions. And yet the owners and frequenters of these iron domiciles seem never to be aware of the fact As I lay in bed in one of these metal inns on the road, I was constrained to hear the private conversation of my host and hostess, who had retired for the night. So this is Mr. Anthony Trollope, said the host. The hostess assented, but I could gather clearly from her voice that she was thinking much more of her back hair than of her visitor. Well, said the host, he must be a damn fool to come travelling in this country in such weather as this. Perhaps after all, the host was aware of the peculiarity of his house and thought it well that I should know his opinion. He could not have spoken any words with which, at that moment, I should have been more prone to agree. Dunedin is a remarkably handsome town, and when its age is considered, a town which may be said to be remarkable in every way. The main street has no look of newness about it. The houses are well built, and the public buildings, banks and churches are large, commodious and ornamental. It strikes a visitor as absurd that there should be six capitals in New Zealand, a country which 40 years ago was still cursed with cannibalism. But it strikes him as forcibly with wonder that it should so quickly have possessed itself of many of the best fruits of civilization. The prosperity has come, I think, less from any special wisdom on the part of those who endeavoured to establish New Zealand colonies on this or another scheme than from the fact that in New Zealand British energies have found a country excellently well adapted for their development. In regard to Otago and Dunedin, it was the intention of the founders, or at any rate of those who instigated the founders, to establish an especially Presbyterian settlement. Doubtless many Scotch families did come out to it, and Scotch names are predominant. The Scotch have always been among the best, or perhaps the very best, colonisers the world has produced. But Otago is by no means now an exclusively Presbyterian province, nor is Dunedin an exclusively Presbyterian city. Leaving Dunedin, we rose up a long wooded hill, with a view to our right over the landlocked arm of the sea down to Port Chalmers, which is the port for Dunedin. It was a most lovely drive. The scenery of the whole country round Dunedin is beautiful, and this was the most beautiful scene of all. After a drive of about 16 miles, we breakfasted at a place called Waikawaiiti, at which we found the landlord firing guns up the chimney to put out the fire. In spite of this little confusion, 
we were excellently provided, getting a much better coach breakfast than used to be common in England. The first night's rest was, for the coach, at a small town called Oamaru, and for us at a squatter's house four miles further on. This we reached at 9pm and left the next morning at 6am, hours at which, in fully civilised countries, one does not expect a stranger to entertain one. But we found our hostess expecting us at dinner, and in the morning she got up and gave us our breakfast. Twelve miles of as miserable a road as ever I travelled brought us to the Waitaki River, which is the boundary of the province. It was a piercingly cold morning, and we felt aggrieved greatly when we found that we had to leave the coach and get into a boat. But the dimensions of our own hardships lessened themselves to our imagination when we found that two of the boatmen descended into the river and pushed the boat for half a mile up the stream. During a part of the way there, three men were in the water, and yet the boat hardly seemed to move. For this service, we were charged two shillings apiece, which sum was not included in the coach fare. Pitying the men because of their sufferings, I gave them something over to drink. It was taken, but taken without thanks and with evident displeasure, and handed over with the ferry money to the employer. In New Zealand, and in a much lesser degree in Australia also, you may ask any man or any number of men to drink without running the slightest risk of displeasing them, but the offer of money is considered to be offensive. The drinking must be done at the bar of a public house, and the money must be paid at the bar to the publican and not to your friend who drinks. Even servants will refuse money offered to them. A poor girl whom I had injured, knocking down into the mud, the line on which all her clothes were drying, although she was in tears at the nuisance of having to wash them again, refused the money that I offered her, saying that though she was only a poor Irish girl without a friend in the world, she was not so mean as that. And I am the not-quite-as-mean Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. The imposing statue of the Reverend Dr. Donald McNaughton Stewart in Queen's Garden has an interesting history. Judy Southworth reads a report written by Sarah Gallagher. Now largely surrounded by trees, the bronze statue known as the Stewart Memorial sits on a small reserve opposite Queen's Gardens in central Dunedin. Installed in 1898, the statue commemorates the life of the Reverend Dr. Donald McNaughton Stewart, who had an immense impact on the people of Dunedin and the wider Presbyterian community through his roles as a church leader and educationalist. The land where the memorial stands was once a wide mudflat near the mouth of the Toitu Stream, which emptied into Otago Harbour, and the site of the Toitu Taurakawaka, a landing site utilised by Katima Moore and Kaitahu people's access to fresh water and Mahika Kai sites. Nearby was the Kaike Otipoti. Following colonisation, this land was reclaimed in the 1860s and 1870s using material from the reduction of Naimoana Erua, Bell Hill. The statue stands close to the site of the former Dowling Street car park and where some of the earlier sites of formal European settlement were situated. Born in Scotland in 1819, Donald McNaughton Stewart was educated at the parish school of Kenmore. Following his schooling, he worked as a teacher and later accepted a position at a school in Windsor in England while also studying theology. He completed his studies in Edinburgh, after which he became a minister of the Free Church of Scotland. 
Stuart married Jessie Robertson in 1850 and in 1860 seized the opportunity to emigrate to Otago, reportedly panting for the exciting labours of planting the gospel in some part of our great colonial empire. In May 1860, he was appointed as First Minister of Knox Church in Dunedin. Stuart was popular, a respected and influential public figure known for his genial manner, ready smile and compassionate interest in people and for his tolerance and deep commitment to the social expression of his Christian principles. He was an active member of the Synod of the Presbyterian Church and the Synod's University, Theological College and Church Extension Committees. In 1872, Stuart was awarded a Doctor of Divinity by the University of St Andrews. A devoted educationalist, he was chairman of the Otago Boys and Girls High Schools Board between 1879 and 1894. He was elected Vice-Chancellor of the University Council in 1871, where he remained until he was elected Chancellor in 1879. During this time, Stuart made significant contributions to the development of the university, adding the School of Mines, Medicine and Law to its foundation subjects. Though Scottish to the backbone and Presbyterian to the marrow, Stuart was appreciated for his open-minded approach to marriage and was prepared to marry people from different denominations. Stuart's sudden death in 1894 rocked the citizens of Dunedin and the wider province. He lay in state in Knox Church, where he was visited by thousands of people. The day of his funeral was declared a holiday to enable citizens to attend. Shops closed, and 15 to 20,000 people are reported to have attended. In May 1894, the citizens of Dunedin decided to erect a memorial in recognition of Stuart. The secretary of the Stuart Memorial Committee wrote to the council requesting the site where the large lamp stands near the triangle be granted for the statue. Funds were raised and a premium of 25 guineas granted for the best proposal. In 1896, the proposal by Mr William Leslie Morrison, who ran Morrison's Art School in Wellington, was chosen. The statue was significant as the first major civic commission to be granted to a New Zealand resident artist. Morrison depicted Stuart seated, cross-legged, wrapped in his ubiquitous plaid, holding a walking stick and sitting on a curul chair. The plaster model was shipped to England in pieces for casting in bronze. The statue was admitted into the colony free of duty and was unveiled on the 22nd of June 1898. The statue was described as a work of uncompromising realism. Stuart emanates energy. The statue returned to the eye of the public in 1922 when it was proposed that it and the statue of Queen Victoria be moved to other sites. The area surrounding the memorial was to be transformed into a tramway balloon loop. Other sites were proposed, however the tramway balloon was cleared in readiness by July 1922. At the beginning of August, it was reported that the statue had been re-erected upon its old site, but with a difference. This being that Stuart had been rotated 90 degrees, so he faced the bank of Australasia building. His statue was placed on a pedestal, five foot higher, that's 1.5 metres, built of Leith bluestone and Hobart sandstone, and incorporated seating and a flower garden. Despite discussions about moving the statue to coincide with the 125th anniversary of Stuart's death, 
and the university's recent 150th celebrations, the Reverend Dr. Stewart remains in the Queen's Gardens area today and recently underwent important restoration work. The Stewart Memorial is a registered Category 1 historic place. You can find this story on the Heritage List online at heritage.org.nz. This is Judy Southworth for Heritage Matters. There's been a great deal of focus on the Pacific recently, and Bill Southworth has found an earlier link between Dunedin and Pacific leaders. Former Fijian Prime Minister Ratu Sakamasesimara and former Cook Islands Prime Minister Sir Tom Davis were both former students of the Otago Medical School. In Ratu Mara's case, the word Ratu roughly translates as chief, it was always assumed he had a leadership role to play in a South Pacific homeland. When Fiji was still a British colony, he was born into a high chiefly family in the Lao Islands. With the twilight of empire fast approaching, the British were planning for a smooth transition to independence. London believed Fiji would need a competent leader, and the tall, athletic and intelligent young aristocrat seemed like a good prospect. Thus, from an early age, Ratu Mara was groomed for higher things. In the 1940s, however, Ratu Mara decided he wanted to be a doctor and enrolled at the Otago Medical School. Of this, he would later say... My time at the Otago Medical School I always thought of as the best years of my life. I played a lot of sport, I made a lot of friends, and I was able to get through my exams without much difficulty. I eventually played for Otago in cricket and rugby. In athletics, I got a New Zealand university's record for the high jump and won the drinking blue in Dunedin. I created a record of 1.8 seconds, which stood for some time. But before he completed his medical degree, he received what he described as a bolt out of the blue, a letter from his great-uncle Ratu Salala Sukuna. It summons him home to begin training as a future leader of Fiji. Ratu Salala had been discussing the future of his young nephew with the warden of Wadham College, Oxford, who said Ratu Mara would be useful for Fiji if he left medicine and studied economics instead. By the time he reached Oxford, there had been another sea change. It was decided it would be more useful for him to do a three-year degree in modern history. When this was completed, he was sent on another course, which trained him to be a colonial administrator. His first post back in Fiji was as a district officer in the Nauvoo district, near Pacific Harbour, which is about an hour's drive west of the Fiji capital, Suva. He also doubled as a local magistrate. Surprisingly, I had no sense here in the 50s that the colonial period had to end. We thought we were not going to become independent. We were part of the Queen's Regnum. We were happy. Why should we change things? I belonged to the school that believed we should not be parted from the United Kingdom, and there were countries like the Isle of Man and the Channel Islands who were on their own, and yet they were part of the UK. Our first reaction was that we should adopt that status. We said, why should we? We ceded our islands to the British. As far as we're concerned, we've given authority. How can we bring it back? This is not chiefly. Others in Fiji did not feel that way, especially the hundreds of thousands of Indians whose ancestors had been taken to Fiji as indentured labour to work on the sugar plantations. They had been agitating in the United Nations to give Fiji independence. The British bowed to the inevitable and the process of decolonisation was begun. 
Ratumara became the leader of the newly formed Alliance Party, a party overwhelmingly made up of Fijians, and the Indians formed their own Federation Party. After independence in 1970, Ratumara's Alliance Party won the first election, and, winning subsequent elections, he ruled the country for the next 15 years. There were tensions. The Indian population increased until it was slightly larger than that of the Fijians, who came to believe, rightly or wrongly, that they were about to be swamped in what they regarded as their country. When the alliance was defeated by Dr Timothy Bavandra's Labour Party in 1987, the new government was only allowed to rule for a month. Soldiers, led by Lieutenant Colonel Sitavini Rambuka, entered Parliament and arrested the new government at gunpoint. The mutineers then played on Fijian fears of Indian domination, although the new Labour Prime Minister and half his cabinet were native Fijians. Radumara was not apparently linked to the mutineers, but he stayed silent during the coup, not using his considerable mana to publicly chastise the mutineers. Fiji would subsequently be bedeviled by other coups and was once even described as cuckoo land. Rodumara was appointed president in 1992, from which perch he was able to observe his beloved country deteriorate, both politically and economically. He died in 2004. He said before he died, Looking back 50 years to my days at Otago, time and again I've regretted I didn't complete medicine. And I think if I did complete medicine, I would have opted out of administration. My ambition, as well as becoming a doctor, was to be a district commissioner and district medical officer. That was my ambition. When I got there, the government would provide a boat, and I would visit all the islands and be a doctor and also a magistrate. What more do you want? This is Moses coming down from heaven. The career of Dr. Saddam Davis, the future Prime Minister of the Cook Islands, was a little different. He was educated at the secondary school in New Zealand, and in 1945, he became the first Cook Islander to qualify as a medical doctor at Otago University. But getting there in the first place from what was then a New Zealand-administered semi-colonial territory was not easy. They didn't think it was a good idea to have an educated Cook Islander come back in an important role. I'm afraid that was the opinion at the time. I had seen evidence of that when I was getting ready to study medicine, and they told my family I shouldn't go to Otago University but to the Fiji School of Medicine, which provided a lower level of education. They felt it would keep me on the right track, as it were. I rebelled and said I would do a full medical course or nothing at all. I had to work my way through, which wasn't easy, but I managed it. Tom Davis saw a continuation of colonial attitudes when on graduation he applied for a job in the Cook Islands Health Service. They turned him down, but he was nothing if not persistent. The fifth time he applied, he was appointed. Once he arrived in the Cooks, his problems continued. In 1948, he was promoted to Chief Medical Officer, but was not allowed to live in the living quarters that had been provided for Europeans filling that post. He was told to live at home instead a decision he put down to what he calls sheer racism. I had to suffer a fair bit of that. I was asked by the resident commissioner not to worry so much about sick people. I was spending too much money. Eventually, it made me think we really needed to be free of this. Our people had much more intelligence than they were being credited with. They were being trampled on. 
But I have to say New Zealand supported my medical program fully. I started with a budget of £12,000 to £15,000 and within three years it was £45,000 and we had a good medical service. His next stop was at the Harvard School of Public Health where he taught and researched the medical aspects of living in space as well as in heat and cold. He was to spend 20 years in the United States and in that time worked at Cape Canaveral for NASA as part of the Apollo moon landing program. The Cook Islands resident commissioner had told him when he left that he would never get a job back there again. In other words, he would never again work as a doctor in the country of his birth. He was told, in fact, that the New Zealand Prime Minister, Walter Nash, did not like him. Then came a breakthrough. In 1965, he heard about the choice of self-government back home and the election of Albert Henry's Cook Islands Party. Three years after independence, he headed back to the Cooks. Davis formed the Democratic Party in 1972 and, after losing several elections, finally ascended to the Prime Ministership in 1978 and was knighted three years later. After fighting against the paternalism of the New Zealand government for a long period, the Cooks finally got control over its economy and effectively gained control of its foreign affairs policy. Sir Tom retired from politics and died in 2007. It is something of an eye-opener to see how New Zealand was regarded for much of this period. Sir Tom again. I've always loved New Zealand, but any country with a colony treats it in the way they treated us. Look back in Polynesian history, the Tongans, the Samoans, the Tahitians, they've all been climbed over. Look back to the Romans, they did it and New Zealand didn't act any differently from the Romans. It's the nature of colonial power, and it's no surprise that during those years Cook Islanders lost a sense of their worth. It's not all corrected yet, but 90% of the people really believe in themselves, they have self-esteem, they do things their own way. I am grateful for much of this material to Ian Johnson and Malcolm Powell's and their book, New Flags Flying, Pacific Leadership. This is Bill Southworth for Heritage Matters. The award-winning Heritage Matters is broadcast on the first Monday of each month at 9.30am and replayed on the following Sunday at 7pm. There are further replays on the third week of the month, Thursday at 1pm and Sunday at 7pm. Or you can listen as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. As Aotearoa New Zealand's National Heritage Agency, Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga is proud to sponsor Heritage Matters. Celebrate our heritage by becoming a member to visit more than 20 heritage places we care for across the motu for free. You'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, exclusive member events and free or discounted admission to over 1,000 international heritage places. Support the heritage of Aotearoa New Zealand. Check out visitheritage.co.nz This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.